We are continuing in our sermon series uh, through the Beatitudes, and what we're doing is we're looking at the words of Jesus, which is always a good idea. And if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous sermons ever preached by Jesus himself, he takes us through these eight Beatitudes, he, they're, they're called, and you've heard them before. He says, blessed are those who, blessed are those who, and then it's always followed by something. So we've gone through blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness, Blessed are those who are uh, able to have strength under control, right, and be gentle. And all these different characteristics that he basically is saying, if you want to be blessed by God, if you want to actually have some happiness in your life, if you want to be healthy while you're here on this earth, there's some characteristics that you need to adopt to become more like Jesus. And uh, one of our values here at RISE, which we talked about last week in our um, RISE 101 class, there were about 40 of you there, thanks for coming, uh, is that... Every Christian in the church is actually a minister. Did you know that? The Bible makes that very clear, that every Christian is a minister. It's not just pastors who are ministers. Every Christian's called to be a minister. And the word ministry literally means to serve God and serve others. That's all it is. So when you're serving and helping others, you are doing ministry when you're doing it in Jesus' name. And so one of the ministries that every single one of us is supposed to be about is what we would call the ministry of mercy. The ministry of mercy. Let me go ahead and read you this because there's not enough mercy in the world. Um, and so it's our hope that the people of Rise Church would actually leave these doors after they come in here and be mercy dealers out on the street. We want to be people that show mercy, that, that give mercy, that we're going to talk about that in depth. But here's, here's the fifth beatitude. Matthew 5, 7, Jesus says this, God blesses those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. Another way to say that is you're going to get what you give out. You're going to get back what you give. Um, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So first we have to answer the question, what is mercy? And I think that most of us, especially that have grown up in the church, would define mercy in two ways. We would say that, well, mercy is helping people who can't help themselves, right? That's showing mercy. But mercy is also forgiving, maybe forgiving people that don't deserve it. That's mercy as well. But what I'm going to show you today is that mercy goes so much deeper than that. That that's a very basic understanding of mercy that Jesus actually calls us to understand it at a much deeper level. And what we're going to look at today is how this characteristic of mercy in your life is something Jesus tells us to have and that it actually helps all of our relationships and all of our interactions when we have it. Um, so before we look at the practical stuff, first we need to answer the question because there's always somebody sitting here who's like, why should I care? Why should I care about mercy? Why should I put this to practice in my life? Uh, well, I'm going to answer that question first. So if you're taking notes, follow along with your outline. You can write this down. Why should I be someone who shows mercy? The first reason is because God has shown me mercy, right? God has shown me mercy. The, God, the Bible says God is merciful, and it says it literally hundreds and hundreds of times that he is merciful, he is compassionate, he is forgiving, he has shown mercy. Let me just show you a couple of places. In Ephesians 2, it says, but God, being rich in what? Mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's our sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God has shown mercy to us. And the point is, God wants us to act toward other people in the exact same way he's acted toward us, to show that mercy. Uh, in Matthew 18, Jesus says, shouldn't you have mercy on others just as I've had mercy on you? And in this situation, Jesus is actually telling a story about an unmerciful employee. 
who is serving the master, and it turns out he owes the master all this money, and the master says to him, all right, come in, and he thinks he's going to get thrown in jail, but instead he says, you know all that money that you owe me? You're guilty of owing that money, but I'm going to wipe your slate clean. You now owe me nothing, so go and be free. So the guy gets really excited, and he goes out in the streets, and he's like, yes, my debts have been paid. And the first thing he does is he runs to somebody who owes him a smaller amount of money than he owed the master, and he grabs him by the throat, and he says, pay me what you owe me, or I'm going to have you thrown in jail. Yeah. <laughs> and in that story, uh, he says, what are you doing? Well, he says, I was merciful to you. You were unmerciful to this guy that owed you less so you're going to be thrown in jail. He goes to jail. After all that, he was so excited, now he's thrown back in jail. So God says, I've shown mercy to you. The second thing is God actually demands that you show mercy. It's one of the demands he puts on your life. He commands it. He instructs it. There's a verse in the book of Micah, and it's, again, one of many verses, but it says, the Lord God has told us what is right and what he demands. So that means what follows is important. It's what God himself says is right and what he instructs us to do, right? He says, see that justice is done, let mercy be your first concern, and humbly obey your God. So in other words, if you want to summarize what life's about, he gives you three things here. He says, do what is right, okay, that's justice. He says, you've got to make mercy your number one priority, that's a big deal, and you've got to live humbly with me if you want to be in my family, that's what he says. And then, uh, so one third of that requirement is that you need to show mercy. It's, that means it's a big deal to God. And this next statement is going to shock some of you. And I'm going to explain it, so I'll give you the context, but it's going to surprise you. God actually says in several places in the Bible that you showing mercy is even more important than your worship, than your acts of worship. Let me show you one spot. In Hosea chapter 6, he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And if you look at the context there, he's actually talking to a group of worshipers, a group of religious people that are giving their offerings and their sacrifices as acts of worship. And he says, this doesn't mean anything to me if you're not merciful. In other words, he's saying to them, you know what, if you're going to come in here and sing praises like glory to me and, you know, you're going to sing praise you God and I love you God and you're wonderful God, but then you go out there and treat people like dirt, you treat your husband like dirt, your wife like dirt, your kids like dirt, people you come in contact and there's no mercy involved, then he says, I don't want your sacrifices, I want you to be merciful. He says that's the top priority. Here's a third one. I don't think anybody would deny, deny this. The third reason you need to show mercy is that you're going to need more of it. <laughs> How many know that you're going to make a lot of mistakes between today and the day you die? Three of you in the back. Okay. So uh, the Bible teaches over and over this concept. That there, it, here's, a, here's an important part. James chapter 2, verse 13. There will be no mercy. Circle that. No mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. Ouch. But here's the good news. If you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. So do you want God to judge you or do you want him to be merciful? Then be merciful. That's what it's saying. It's an if-then statement. There's one more reason that it's important for us to show mercy, and this is going to sound cheesy to some of you, but I'm going to explain. It's absolutely true. Showing mercy will actually make you happier in life. Some of you that struggle with being happy in life, this is one of the reasons it might be so. And this is actually true of all eight Beatitudes, because if you go to the original language that Jesus used, the word for blessed in these verses is the same word for happy. So that means you could actually interpret this as blessed are those who... Happy are those who. It can be interpreted both ways. It's the same exact word that's used in the original language. And so a lot of, it's one of the sources of happiness. And so it teaches that the less mercy I show to others, it also teaches, 
that the more grumpy and negative and cynical and depressed I'm going to become. By the way, did you know that uh, this is one of the most important things for couples to learn? <laughs> Mercy. And I'll get to that in a second. But let's look at this verse. <laughs> Proverbs 14. Those who despise their neighbors are sinners, but happy are those who are kind to the poor. Okay, those who show mercy. Let me show you another one, Proverbs 11. A merciful person helps himself, but a cruel person hurts himself. So you actually help yourself when you're merciful, and you hurt yourself when you don't offer mercy to others. You're hurting yourself. In the Living Bible, it says it a little different. I like this translation too. Your own soul is nourished when you show mercy. That means it's a good thing to do for your own health, for your own life. So, so those four things, guys, God's shown you mercy, so you need to show it. He demands that you do it. It's one of his instructions to you. You're going to need a lot more of it between now and the day you go to heaven. <laughs> and also, that it actually can make you live a better life. Okay, that's important. So at Rise Church, we don't believe in teaching the Bible simply to fill people's heads with knowledge and make you smarter because the Bible actually teaches that that's worthless if you don't apply it to your life. That we're to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word, not just smarty pants of the word. We're supposed to actually apply it to our life in practical ways. So we always tie it in. So here's that part, okay? You might be asking, all right, I know I need to be merciful. Like you, Jared, it's one of, your, one of my weaknesses because it's one of mine, guys. I'll be honest and say that. This is a tough one for me, some of these especially, but here's some practical ways that you can be merciful as Jesus tells you to be and be blessed by God in doing so, okay? This first one's really difficult. <laughs> be patient with people's quirks. What do I mean by that? Their idiosyncrasies, their peculiarities, their mannerisms, their odd behaviors, their irritating habits. You know what I'm talking about, right? Don't elbow them. You show mercy when you do not get irritated by those weird things that people have. When you don't get angry and you don't get uptight with people who have these weird little quirks. And we've all got them, by the way. You've got them, I've got them, We've all got these little mannerisms. We all have certain habits that are irritating to other people. We can just be honest and say that. Ways of speaking, talking, acting, thinking that just, uh, you know, they're quirks. But here's the thing. When you control your anger and you refuse to let those things bother you and get all under your skin, it's, an, it's a way of showing mercy. It's a practical way to be merciful. Let, let me give you an example of what might be the most effective marriage advice you will have ever received. And I know that because it was the best advice I ever received for my marriage. In fact, it saved my marriage years ago. It's from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Be patient with each other. This is the important part. Making allowance for each other's faults. Why? Because of your love. Circle that part. Making allowance for each other's faults. Men, you married a sinner. And she married a bigger one. <laughs> Here's the problem. Two imperfect people cannot make a perfect marriage. And none of you are perfect. Last time I checked, and neither am I. So that means that we don't have the ability to have a perfect marriage while we're here on this earth. You have faults. Your spouse has faults. Uh, you can really only be healthy in a marriage, guys, if you're able to both forgive each other. That's the key. If you can't forgive each other, you're not going to have a happy, healthy marriage because you're going to need a lot of it, hands down. Um, it says there, make allowance for each other's faults because of your love. The top place that you need to show mercy is in your home, to your spouse, to your kids, to those that frequent your home. That's the number one place because everything else flows out of that. And, and you see each other's faults 
better than you see anybody else's because you're living up close and personal with these people. You're probably, hopefully, going to live with, with them for the rest of your life. So you're only going to see more and more faults. You're only going to see more and more things that need to be forgiven. Um, you know, if you talk to any marriage counselor who knows what they're doing, they're going to tell you the same thing. They're going to tell you that almost every marriage that drowns, sometimes, don't get me wrong, sometimes there's a catastrophe. Sometimes there's a tragedy. Sometimes there's a huge moral failure or sin that just sends that marriage spiraling, okay? That happens. But any marriage counselor will tell you that the majority of marriages that are buried and die, it's because of a little nag here, a little hit here, a little dig here, and they just keep coming for years without ever being addressed and nothing's happening, no communication, no forgiveness, no acknowledgement, and eventually it just buries it. The Bible says we show mercy by being patient with each other's quirks, our faults, our weaknesses, our mistakes, all the things that make us human, by the way. But that's hard, right? Because <laughs> you're sitting there like, okay, I, I get that it says that, but man, how do I do it? Because that's hard. The answer is one word, wisdom. You can't do it without wisdom. The wiser you get, the more patient you're going to be. Let me explain. In James 3, it defines wisdom. It says, wisdom from God, wisdom from above, are these things, is these things, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, and full of mercy. So that means the wiser I get while I walk this earth, the more merciful I'm going to become. You know, a lot of people think they're wise in this world, and they're not. They're just full of themselves. They're not full of mercy. <laughs> and wisdom is full of mercy, it says. It also says wisdom from heaven is peace-loving. So what does that mean? That means if you're not peace-loving, you're not wise. It says it's gentle at all times. That means if you're too, ir too easily irritated, then you're not wise. It says it's willing to yield. So if you're unwilling to ever yield, and you always have to be right, then it says you're not wise. The wiser I become, the more patient and merciful I'm going to become. The more grumpy, the more irritated, the more angry, the more cynical I become, the more the Bible actually defines me as a fool. <laughs> so you have to ask yourself the question, do I want to walk this earth as a fool or as a wise person? And that explains wisdom. You have to be merciful. You have to learn that trait of mercy. And I'm up here with you guys. This is a hard one for me. <laughs> There's another way that you can practice mercy this week, and it's to help hurting people. Helping people who are hurting is an act of mercy. And the truth is, every single person in this room has people around them every week that are hurting, but sometimes we're just too busy to recognize it. We're too busy to see it. If you care, you'll figure it out. Jesus told the story of uh, this guy called the Good Samaritan. And the reason he told the story was to illustrate this exact point that I'm trying to make about helping the hurting and how that is the definition of mercy. So if you know the story, um, first, this guy comes to Jesus one day and he says, hey, Jesus, I don't have time to read all the scriptures, the whole Bible. Can you just sum it up? Can you just tell me what's the one most important thing that I'm supposed to remember? And Jesus says, well, I can't give you one, but I'll give you two. The first one is love God with all your heart. And the second thing is love your neighbor as yourself. So the guy hears that, and he thinks about it, and he says, you know, I want to try to get out of that. That doesn't really sound that good to me. So he asks Jesus a question. He says, well, who's my neighbor? Who exactly are you referring to that I need to love as myself? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan as a parable to teach him this point. And here's how the story goes. There's a man who's going down the road to a place called Jericho, and some robbers come, and they beat him almost to death, and they leave him by the side of the road, take all his possessions. And so he's laying there by the side of the road, bleeding out, beaten, whipped, and three men pass him by. 
The first two walk by without even acknowledging that he's there, just completely ignoring him. The third man, though, who, by the way, is from a different race and a different culture, that's an important point, that we're all, we're all to be treated the same, right? And he, uh, he stops, and he helps this guy up. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to the nearest motel. He pays for him to have a night there, and he says, by the way, do you have any more bills? Because I'm going to come back later, and I'm going to pay all of those as well. So he loves this guy. He, he meets this guy's needs, who's hurting, who's very different from him. And Jesus then stops the story and says to the guy, okay, in that story, who do you think is a neighbor? And the guy's response, if you read it, is the one who showed the, mo- the most mercy, is the neighbor. So by the way, when you're helping people in need, and there are going to be people in your life this week, if you pay attention, that God puts in your circle, who are in need, whether it's a relational need, a financial need, a spiritual need, an emotional need, and they're going to be put there so that maybe you can help them, that maybe you can care for them in some way. Here's the important piece of this. In the different things that God instructs us to do in his word, he doesn't ever just tell us to do it like we're going through the motions, like it doesn't have any heart to it, okay? So there's a certain attitude that he also tells you to have when you're doing the things he tells you to do. So look at this in Romans chapter 12, verse 8. He says, when you show mercy, do it cheerfully. Don't do it grudgingly. Do it cheerfully. He says, don't do it with a bad attitude. I I love how the message paraphrases this verse also. It says, if you work with the disadvantaged, those in need, do not let yourself get irritated with them or depressed by them. Keep a smile on your face. That's a good word. That's the attitude with which we're supposed to serve people in need. Okay, there's a third way that you can practice mercy this week. And it's a hard one. (laughs) Give people a second chance. And sometimes a third chance. And by the way, everybody needs a second chance. You do. And what I don't understand is why so many people, even in the church, have been given so many second chances in their life, but they're unwilling to give one to somebody else when they get hurt by them. I don't understand where that comes from. Because everybody in here has been given a second chance at one point or another. We are called to forgive the fallen. Even those who've hurt us, we're called to forgive. And that's not normal though, right? <laughs> that's, that's not natural. That's not, that's not a place that we live. That doesn't come natural to me. If it comes natural to you, kudos, because it doesn't come natural to me. Because normally when somebody hurts us, we respond in one of two ways. We either want to write them off completely or we want to get even with them. Those are our two natural responses. But here's what the Bible says in Ephesians 4. It says, don't get bitter or angry or use harsh words that hurt each other. Don't yell at one another or curse or ever be rude. Instead, be kind and merciful and forgive others just as God forgave you because of Christ. So notice in this passage, the Bible is contrasting six negative behaviors with mercy. And it's saying if you're going to do any of these six negative things, then you're not being merciful. So if you want to be merciful and you're doing these things, you've got to stop. And so it says if you want to be merciful, then you can't get bitter You can't get angry, you can't use harsh words, you don't yell at people, you don't curse, and you don't be rude. Are you starting to see why mercy is so important in our world today? Because that's the world we live in. Those traits are all over the place everywhere you go. They can even be found in the church, and this is the last place they should be found. So if I were to ask you, how would you rate yourself on this part of mercy? How, if you think about it, okay, do I use harsh words a lot? Am I harboring some bitterness in my heart towards somebody that I need to let go of? Am I rude to people in the way that I talk? Or am I kind and merciful, forgiving others as God forgave me?
Think about that because, you know, I'm just going to be blunt. We want Rise Church to be known as a place in the community where you can come in and it's a place of mercy. It's a place of grace. And the people just deal out mercy and grace. We want people to come into Rise Church and, and, and be able to find a second chance at life. No matter where they've been, who they've been, what they've done, to find out that the grace of Jesus is available to them and Jesus can change them from the inside out and he's the only one that can. And we want them to experience that from our people when they walk in here. And they do. We have to be mercy dealers who are willing to give a second chance to people. There's a fourth one. This one's even harder. <laughs> Jesus also says that you're supposed to do good to those who hurt you. If you really boil it down, <laughs> mercy is not giving people what they deserve. Mercy is giving people what they actually need. Okay, that's, that's a good way to say it. That's mercy. Why? Because that's what God does for you. God doesn't give you what you deserve. Thank God. <laughs> God gives you what you need, which is his grace and mercy. I'll be honest with you. If, if I got what I deserved, I wouldn't be standing up here. In fact, I wouldn't be alive if I got what I deserved. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us has made it on our own. It's only by the grace of Christ. So thank God that I didn't get what I deserve. And instead, I got what I needed, which was Jesus to save me. So here's another question. Why would I do good to people that hurt me? There's got to be some reasons for that. Because did you know that God doesn't just give instructions because he's trying to throw out rules for us to follow, to obey him? He actually gives instructions in his word because it actually benefits our life as well. It's a better way to live in a lot of ways. Let me tell you some of those reasons. I heard five different people use this phrase this week. And I've heard it for years from different people, but they said, you know, hurt people hurt people. Have you heard that? And I think that's so true that hurt people hurt people. The people that you want to love the least are often the ones who need your love the most. The ones who have hurt you the deepest sometimes are the ones who need the most love because the reason that's coming out of them in the first place is because they've been hurt even worse than you've been hurt in their past. Sometimes that's how it works. And so we need to assess people from that place sometimes instead of immediately responding to them with hatred. Maybe that's coming from a place of deeper hurt than I've even experienced and that's why they're reacting in that way. So let me ask you a question. Just think about this. Who in your life has hurt you the most? Who in your life has hurt you for the longest? Who in your life has hurt you the most recently? They need your mercy. They don't deserve it. I didn't say they deserve it. They don't. But they need it. They need your mercy. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus gives one of the most difficult commands that he's ever given. He says, love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Why would I want to do that? Well, remember the beginning of the message? First of all, because God did that for me. Secondly, because I'm going to need him to do it some more. Right? Also, it's going to actually make me live a better, healthier life. All those reasons. Love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Here's the way it works, guys. If you, if you, really, if you look at it from a practical sense, when somebody hurts you, if you hurt them back worse, you're now beneath them, morally, spiritually, okay? If somebody hurts you and you get even with them, you're now even with them, which means you're no better. When somebody hurts you 
and you show mercy, you're morally superior at that moment. The Bible says that in a lot of different ways in a lot of different places. I don't have time to go into all of it, but that's how it works. If you continue this passage, it says, when you do that, then your reward will be great. There's the motivation. And you will be children of the Most High. In other words, you get the identity. Be merciful just as God has been merciful. That's the instruction. There's a famous story about President Abraham Lincoln. And it was right after the Civil War had ended about 150 years ago. And the North had defeated the South. You know the story. And he's standing on the balcony of the White House. And he's giving a speech to all the people that are standing out there. And he's talking about how they're going to rebuild the nation. And as he's talking, there's a senator from Iowa. I think his name was Harlan or something like that. And he shouts out this statement. He says, what are we going to do with the rebels? What are we going to do with the traitors? And the unmerciful crowd starts shouting, hang them, hang them, hang them. And as the story goes, Lincoln's 11-year-old son looks up at him in that moment. He's standing right beside him, and he says, no, Papa, don't hang them. Hang on to them. And they say that Lincoln turned to the crowd in that moment and said, my son is right. We're not going to hang them. We're going to hang on to them. We're going to keep them around. That's mercy. Number five, be kind, the Bible says, to those who offend me. Ooh, <laughs> that's a hard one too. Have you guys noticed that the verbal attacks on Christians in our country are going up? Make no mistake about it, they're increasing. People are making slurs at Christians and they're taking shots at Christians and, and really it's a time in history where more bad things are being said about Christians, at least in our country than ever before in America's history. Um, and there's groups that are pushing anti-Christian agendas right now as we speak, and you have to ask yourself the question why, and I'm gonna tell you the reason why. The reason is because we represent a barrier. Because when a culture wants to go a certain way, which it does, and it's leaning that way, that doesn't line up with what God's word says, then that means Christians represent a barrier to the culture going the direction that it wants to go. We're a barrier to that because Peter said we should Listen to God, not man. We should always obey God rather than man if they contradict. And so that means that what God's word says is true. It's the same yesterday, tomorrow, and today. And that means even the parts that are uncomfortable or the parts where our culture seems to be shifting another way still stand. God's truth is God's truth. And what's false is false, and it always will be. And so what happens here is it, it, people start to do things and say things toward Christians that, is a, that are offensive. And here's the problem, just from our side, guys. The problem is we need to decide if it's more important to us to win the argument or to win people to Christ because you're not going to do both. And those of you who spend all your time reaming people on Facebook because you enter into these arguments where you're never going to convince them or you get into a mad, angry argument with somebody over what they believe, you're never going to win them to Jesus Christ. So you have to decide, do you care more about winning every argument and always being right and defending what you believe more than winning them to Christ? And those two things go hand in hand sometimes. I'm not saying you drop the truth. I'm not saying you ever contradict it, and I'm not saying you ever don't speak up for it. But I'm saying we need to start with the people. <laughs> we need to start with loving the people because that's how you're going to win people to Christ. Let me give you an example of this from the Bible. I'm not making it up, okay? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul basically says this from his own life. He says this, even though I once was a blasphemer, 
Okay, there's a plenty of those in our world. And a persecutor of Christians, by the way, and a violent man, even though all that, he says, I was shown mercy, here's the reason, because I acted in ignorance and unbelief during those times. Did you catch that? That's the key. Sometimes what you need to realize when somebody's throwing this stuff at you and they're denying that this is true and they're saying there's no God or whatever they're saying out there is that they're coming from a place of ignorance and unbelief. They haven't come to believe it yet. They don't know the truth. They're ignorant. And that's where Paul was, the guy that wrote half the New Testament, the guy that led tons of people to Christ after he met Jesus. He says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for others who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And if you lived in Paul's days before he met Jesus, you would have been offended by him and you probably would have hated him. You wouldn't have been interested in being kind to Paul. He was persecuting Christians. He was attacking them. He was having them thrown in jail. But he said, I was shown mercy so that I could come to Christ and then my life would be an even greater example to others. That should be our hope for the people that don't yet believe. Jude chapter 1 makes it even clearer. In verse 22, it says, Show mercy to those who have doubts. Some translations say, show mercy to disbelievers. In other words, show mercy to atheists. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Show mercy to them while being careful that you aren't contaminated by their sins. In other words, we're to avoid sin and fight against sin, but we're to love everybody. And you can do both at the same time, regardless of what you might have been told. You don't have to tell someone that their sin's okay to love them. That's one of the great misconceptions in our culture, that if I disagree with how you live or something you believe, that I hate you. I don't hate you. I love you. I'm still going to speak God's truth. But have a one-on-one -on -one with me. I'm not going to do it on Facebook with you. Then you'll see that I love you. That's encouragement for some of you. <laughs> Let me give you two more. And these two, you've probably never even thought of in terms of showing mercy. These might shock some of you that these are mercy, but the Bible makes it clear they're mercy, and I'll explain both of them, okay? So Jesus taught that these were mercy, and he even quotes that passage from Hosea 6.6 6 in both of these different situations with the Pharisees or the religious people that he was addressing, okay? So number six is build intentional relationships or friendships. Sometimes as a Christian, you need to be intentional with your friendships. There are people in your circle there are people in your neighborhood that live on the same street as you uh, that nobody wants to hang out with, okay? Young people, there's people in your school that nobody wants to hang out with. There's people at your place of employment that nobody wants to hang out with. People you work with every day who others tell jokes about them behind their back. Uh, people who get made fun of. Uh, they may have some of those little quirks or they may live a different lifestyle or they may have a different belief system or they may dress differently or come from a different culture or whatever it might be. But the point is, maybe they're not popular. Maybe they're outcasts, okay? This is a part of our ministry as Christians, as followers of Jesus that is often very overlooked. And so we have to talk about it. I'm saying build intentional friendships with people who don't have friends. Be intentional about that. And build relationships with people who are unbelievers, be the bridge that they can walk across to meet Jesus. How else are they going to get there? Intentionally build friendships with people who seem like they're on the edge or they're not as loved or accepted in the mainstream because of whatever reasons. Build friendships with them. That's what Jesus would do. So some of you say, well, why does God want us to build relationships with the unpopular and, and especially with unbelievers? Why does he want us to do that? 
Because you cannot win your enemies to Christ. You can fight your whole life trying to do that. It's not effective. You can win your friends to Christ, though. It happens around here all the time, constantly. And before someone's going to accept Christ, sometimes they've got to accept you. Paul said that in several different places. Sometimes before somebody's going to ask Jesus to be their friend, you have to be willing to be their friend. Sometimes before somebody can receive the love of God, they have to receive the love of God through you. Sometimes before you can have debates and talk intelligently about how can you trust that this is God's word, how can you trust that this is true, which we can have all kinds of conversations about that. We did a whole sermon series on it. But before they ask those questions, how can I trust Jesus, sometimes they need to know can they trust you. Is God real? Sometimes they need to know you're real first. Paul said, I become all things to all people in hopes that I might reach some. I don't just sit back and not try to reach them by building bridges to them. Here's a good example of it in Matthew 9. The Bible says Matthew, one of the 12 disciples, invited Jesus and his disciples to be his dinner guests. Okay, nobody has a problem with that. That sounds great. Here's the, problem they had, here's the part they had a problem with. Along with his fellow tax collectors and many other notorious sinners. Contextually, there's something you need to understand here because we don't think of this profession the same as they did back then. So what you need to understand is back then, anybody that worked as a tax collector was the equivalent of somebody in your neighborhood today who sells drugs to little kids. That's the level of person that this was. Let me explain. So the tax collectors back then had no authority over them, but they were given full authority over the people, but no accountability. So what would happen is the Roman government would tell the tax collectors to go in and tell everybody in that town to give you one denarii. But they would go into the town because there's no accountability, and they would say, all right, everybody, each person's going to give me 10 denarii. I'm going to pocket nine and send one back to the government. And every single one of them almost did that. So tax collectors, you have to understand, was one of the most unpopular professions, one of the worst jobs. People hated them uh, and, and, and despised them. So it says, Matthew invites Jesus and his disciples over for dinner, along with the tax collectors and a bunch of other sinners. The Pharisees, that's the religious leaders, were indignant. Why does your teacher eat with such scum? They called him scum. When he heard this, Jesus replied, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Ah. <laughs> and then he says this to them, the religious leaders. He says, you need to go learn the meaning of Scripture because you're not reading it right. And then he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. He says, I want you to be merciful. I don't want your sacrifices. If you can't do mercy, I don't, want, I don't want the rest of it. For I have come to call sinners, not those who think they're already good enough. So follow me on the logic here. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, are attacking Jesus for hanging out with the wrong crowd, and Jesus says to them, he basically says, you know what your problem is, guys? You don't know the true meaning of mercy. You're not interpreting the scriptures properly. Why? Because they thought mercy was only forgiving people who don't deserve it and helping people in need. No, that's not the only definition of mercy. Jesus says it here. He says, what I'm going to do to show mercy is I'm going to go to a party with people who you would never go to a party with, and I'm going to have dinner with them. I'm going to spend time with them. Why? Because I understand mercy. Now I want you to notice, there's a lot of truth here. It says Matthew invited. Circle that word. That's an important word. Now I'm going to ask you a pointed question. If you're a Christian sitting in this room, when was the last time that you invited an unbeliever over for dinner? When was the last time you invited anybody over for dinner? Have you ever had any notorious sinners in your home? 
You want to be merciful? Now you're getting to where the rubber meets the road because Jesus would say, if you're not doing that ever, you're not like me. That's what he would say. And sometimes the problem is the longer that you're a Christian, the more you only have Christians in your close circle of friends and you're no longer befriending people who are outside the church. And the problem with that is how do you expect to get the good news of the gospel out to people that you're building relationships with if you don't have any relationships with people that don't yet know God? It's the only way to do it. So Jesus says, go learn the scriptures. This is what mercy's about. And I want to warn you, too, that if you begin to live a life of mercy, as Jesus says here, the moral and the political legalists are going to attack you because they did him. They're going to criticize you. It wasn't the people outside of religion that were ticked off at Jesus all the time. It was the religious leaders themselves who thought it was all about following the rules. They were the ones who were upset. So it's like a Democrat inviting a Republican over for dinner. <gasps> or a Republican inviting a Democrat over for dinner and actually being able to have a conversation without hating each other. That's what he would tell you to do. Why? Because I'm practicing the ministry of mercy. And if you do that, you're going to get criticized. Th this is where some of the criticism that I've gotten over the years has come from. Because over the years, I've had a wide variety of friends who are very different from each other. They come from different walks of life. They come from different religions. I like to have a variety of friends because I believe that's what Jesus did and what he would call us to do. And here's the, here's the thing. This is, this is what some people get hung up on. Jesus was not afraid of guilt by association. If I invite them over, everyone's going to think I'm like them. Jesus wasn't afraid of that. You know why? Because he knew who he was, that he doesn't need the approval of anybody except God, and he also knew what his mission was. He, his mission was to seek and save that which is lost. And you can't seek and save that which is lost if you don't know anybody that is lost. <laughs> and that's what we're all called to. So you don't need the approval of, of religious people. You don't need the approval of legalists. You need the approval of God. That's how Jesus lived. I will say that. Number seven. <laughs> Last one. We'll close on this one. This is going to surprise some of you too. You have, to put, you have to value relationships over rules. I'm going to back it up with Jesus. Don't worry. Some of you are like, no. Let me say it this way. If you are a diehard rule keeper... It's not a bad thing, don't hear me wrong, but you do have the potential to push all of the wrong people away, okay? Because if you're a policies and procedures person, again, which is not a bad thing, there's a lot of strengths in that, but you don't have the ability to put people over policies and people over procedures and value relationships over rules, then you're not gonna be able to, to love people into Jesus. Let's look at Matthew 12. This is another time that Jesus had a run-in with the legalists and the Pharisees. It says, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began to pick some grain and eat it. Some Pharisees, the religious leaders, saw this and protested. Your disciples are breaking God's law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. They were rule keepers. But Jesus said, haven't you ever read what King David did when he and his soldiers were hungry? He went into the house of God, that's the temple, and they ate the holy bread that was reserved for the priests. <laughs> Jesus is saying this. Then Jesus says to the Pharisees, that would be like Jesus himself saying, hey, they're hungry. Did you not hear when King David sent his soldiers into Rise Church and they ate the communion bread? <laughs> Jesus is saying, they were hungry, let them eat it. You would not have judged these innocent men, talking about the disciples, if you knew the real meaning of the scripture I want you to be merciful. I don't want your sacrifices. There it is again. 
he quotes Hosea 6 for the second time. And then he says, for I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And here's basically what Jesus was saying. He's saying, guys, are you seriously getting hung up on that? They're hungry. And he says, by the way, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And didn't you know that if you interpret it correctly, the Sabbath was made for man, not for God. In other words, God gifted the Sabbath as a benefit to us as Christians. It was not the other way around as a rule that you have to follow at all costs where you never even do anything good. He said, you guys have it backwards. You're getting hung up on all the rule and ritual instead of the important stuff. So you have to put people above the procedures. I want to dare you to do something kind of risky this week, okay? Not pick grain on the Sabbath. But I want to dare you to commit an intentional act of mercy. I want you to go deal some mercy out in a very intentional way with one of these seven categories, okay? And there's a tension here. There's a tension with some of you between what you would call personal responsibility and intentional mercy because you feel like you're giving in or you're not sticking to the truth if you're too merciful. And some of you, I can see it in your eyes. You're, you're at, you, yep, Jared, you can go overboard on mercy though, right? Can't you go overboard on mercy? Absolutely you can. Jesus did on the cross. On the cross with outstretched arms, he said, I'm going to be more merciful than anybody deserves. I'm going to go way overboard. In fact, after they beat me and whip me and scourge me and stick a crown of thorns into my head and let me die on that tree, the response that comes out of my mouth is going to be, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, which goes back to what I said Paul said. They're ignorant. They're unbelievers. They don't know what they're doing. Can you go overboard on mercy? Yes, you can. Look at the cross. It was way, way overboard. And so maybe you haven't accepted God's mercy for you. In Titus, it says, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. We talked about that last week. But it's according to his mercy that we've been saved. It tells us in Hebrews 4, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, for there we will find mercy in our time of need. So we're going to close a little different today, okay? Normally I would say, let's bow our heads and close our eyes and we'd pray. But instead, as the band comes up, today I'm going to say something different. I'm going to say, I do want you to bow your heads, but this time I want you to leave your eyes open. Because I want you to look down at that message outline, and I'm going to run you through a couple of questions to apply this to your life this week. So bow your heads, look down at your outline. I'm going to ask you a question about each of these, and I just want you to think about it in your brain and write down next to each one the initial of somebody's first name, because we all have them. And you might not be able to do all seven, but do a couple of them, okay? Think about it. Write down the initial of somebody's name that you're going to actually put this word into practice this week with, okay? Don't write the name. It's private. Number one, how do I be merciful? I'm patient with other people's quirks. So write down, who is it that I know that has those irritating quirks that drive me nuts? And I'm going to actually show them some love and mercy this week instead of getting irritated by them. Just put that initial down and then actually do it this week. Who do I need to be more patient with? Maybe it's my spouse, my kids, a friend, a neighbor. Number two, who's near me or around me that is obviously hurting that I can help because that's a way that you show mercy. 
Write down a name, write down an initial. And by the way, if you can't think of anybody around you who's hurting, it means you're not paying attention. Because every single person in this room has somebody near them that's hurting. So pay attention to that. Number three, is there somebody that I know that I need to give a second chance to? I've been holding a grudge. I've been harboring bitterness. People have given me second chances. I'm going to offer them a second chance to be in my life. The next one, do good to those who hurt me. Is there a person who's hurt me recently that I could do good to? It doesn't, ma- it doesn't mean that I become a, a, a punching bag. It doesn't mean that I let somebody walk all over me and constantly wrong me. Disclaimer there. But is there somebody who has hurt me that I can be good to in some way? Number five, who offends me? <laughs> who offends me that I can show kindness to? And maybe it's somebody in this church. Maybe it's a friend or a neighbor. Maybe it's a politician who offends you. Maybe you could actually do what the Bible says and pray for the person instead of being offended by them constantly. Maybe it's somebody who's really close to you and you can show kindness to them. Number six, build intentional relationships. Who's an outcast in my life? Who's an unpopular person that has no friends that I could befriend? And then the last one, is there someone who does not know Jesus? Is there someone who does not believe in God? Is there somebody who does not have faith? Who has a different belief system than me, a different worldview, a different way of life, who I can invite over for dinner and then invite to church? This, my friends, is how you apply mercy practically in your life. 